Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together and to hear your word and listen to it and consider it. Lord, we pray your blessing on these next few minutes. We pray that you would speak to us and encourage us and comfort us and confront us and equip us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So, uh, Daniel 1 through 6 kind of uh, encompasses... The entirety of Daniel's life in exile, essentially, right? It, it start, the first four chapters are Daniel's, Daniel in the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Chapter 5 is Daniel in the royal court of Belshazzar, this guy, uh, king of Babylon. And then Daniel 6 is Daniel in the court of King Darius of Medo-Persia. At the end of Daniel 6, we, uh, we see a, a, a reference to uh, King Cyrus, who is the guy who actually facilitates Israel's return back to their homeland. So pretty much exile start to finish is kind of represented in Daniel 1 through 6. Daniel 7 through 12 can kind of be slotted in, right? Retro, retrofitted in somewhere in that timeline of Daniel 1 through 6. And so uh, Daniel chapter 7 we saw last week uh, is in the, the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So Daniel 7 is between Daniel 4 and 5 in the first year of Belshazzar. Daniel 8 uh, comes in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So also between Daniel 4 and 5, two years after the dream that we saw last week in Daniel 7, and about 10 years before, prior to um, the fall of Babylon and the rise of uh, Medo-Persia. Check, check. Is that... uh, let me know if I, if I need to do anything different. So, um, so that's, that, that's kind of where Daniel 8 is placed into the timeline. He says, and I saw in the vision, when I saw I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision I was at the Ulai Canal. And so, a uh, city in the Persian Empire, the Ulai Canal was a river or maybe a man-made uh, waterway. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one horn was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last, and I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So, ram, two horns. So if this guy, if this ram with two horns, where one is higher than the other, reminds you of the the bear of last week of the bear who had the arm raised up on one side, it should be. That's they're, they're, they're kind of uh, analogous together. The ram is charging west and north and south. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll find out later in the chapter that it's a kingdom that is expanding and kind of pushing its way from, uh, yeah, from the east, kind of going west, north, and south all together. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. So we got the ram pushing its borders to the west, and then we've got this goat uh, coming presumably from the west back toward the, the east, and it's coming in hot. I mean, it's like, you know, flying and headed right for the ram. Verse 6, uh, verse, into verse 5, And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So we got goat with one prominent horn. Or, yeah, yeah, go with one prominent horn, charges the ram, hits it, knocks it over, kills it. Verse 8, And then the goat became exceedingly great, 
But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So, uh, one horn on the goat replaced by four horns. If that reminds you of last week, Daniel 7, of the leopard that had four wings and four heads, uh, that's the same thing. So, so the, the ram is, is analogous to the bear that's raised up on one side, and the goat is analogous to the leopard that has four heads. Verse 9, And then out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. And it became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. So one horn, which gives way to four horns, which then gives way to one horn. And that horn is bad news. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So, uh, the regular burnt offerings that happen in the temple of the Lord, those uh, are, are stopped. Uh, the Prince of Hosts, who is God, uh, you know, um, who, whoever this horn is, is interrupting the burnt offerings that are to be offered to God, and uh, it is kind of defying and, and, and uh, attempting to be uh, considered as great as God himself. Verse 12, and as a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So burnt offerings stop, right? The, the, the host, the people of God are given over to this horn. God's truth is discarded. Uh, God's people are persecuted. This wicked horn will prosper. It's kind of Daniel's vision that he, that he sees. And then in verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Right. So how long is this going to to happen? How long will this horn be in power? How long will he be oppressing the people of God? How long will the, the burnt offerings that are going to be offered to God in the temple, how long will they be suspended? And he said to me, verse 14, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So, the horn will rise to power. All this bad stuff will happen. He will persecute the people of God. He will put an end to the worship of God. And that will happen for 2,300 days or a little over six years. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, the angel, uh, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. It's a fairly typical reaction when a human being sees an angelic being. He said to me, uh, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So, uh, Daniel is confused. He's anxious. He wants to know the interpretation. Someone sent to enlighten him. And when he, when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep and with my face to the ground. But he touched me and he made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the, at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So I'm going I'm to tell you the end. I'm going to tell you how all of this stuff with the, the ram and the goat and the horns and the little horn, like, I'm going to tell you how all of that's going to resolve itself, how all of it is going to come to, to an end. And then the... Starting in verse 20, the being in the dream uh, starts to give Daniel specifics. Uh, specifics about what kings and kingdoms and uh, events that are going to unfold, what they refer to. What, what these figures in the dream uh, refer to. And this is where it gets, again, so specific that uh, secular historians can't accept that the book of Daniel would have been written during Daniel's lifetime in uh, Babylon. They insist 
that uh, it had to be written later because the prophecy is so specific that it seems impossible for it to have been written beforehand. So, uh, he says, verse 20, uh, As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of, of Greece. So, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and 7, this, this, this verse right here helps us interpret those two chapters because uh, the figure from chapter 2, which is parallel with the figure in chapter 7, is also parallel with the figure in chapter 8, and now we know that that is uh, Medo-Persia. Same thing with the leopard and the thighs of bronze, which we now know is analogous to the goat, which is uh, ancient Greece. And all of this checks out, right? Medo-Persian Greece all checks out because if we zip back up to, you don't have to do it with the slides, but just look in your, in your Bible or your bulletin. Um, in verse 4, it says the ram was charging westward and northward and southward, which is uh, Persia is situated to the east of, um, well, I guess, yeah, got east and west, right? Persia is situated to the east of Israel. So as it's pushing over on Israel and trying to conquer Israel, it's traveling west and it's expanding west and north and south. Right, north up here along the coast, uh, Israel, and then down south toward Egypt. That's kind of the way that Pers- the Persian Empire was expanding over. So tracks with verse uh, 4. And the great horn between uh, his eyes is the first king. So the great horn on the goat is the first king of, the, of ancient Greece. Now, uh, Ancient, like most empires, especially uh, ancient empires in the ancient world, it's tough to track down exactly wh- like what's the firm start date or the firm end date of that particular empire. Uh, ancient Greece, you know, there's a bunch of city-states and provinces f- over the course of centuries that all were kind of loosely connected linguistically, spoke similar languages culturally, and so all of those could conceivably be called ancient Greece. But uh, the ancient Greece at its peak, in its most prominent stage, would undoubtedly be under the reign of Alexander the Great, who reigned from 336 B.C. to 323 B.C. And so, in that sense, so I mean, Alexander the Great was the first king of Greece as it existed in that kind of unified, consolidated, most powerful, most prominent form. And so you've got Persia pushing from east to west over on Israel, right? The, the ram that's kind of heading westward. And then you've got uh, Greece over in the east that is racing eastward so fast that its feet aren't even touching the ground. And that tracks as well because... Um, uh, Alexander the Great uh, had, a, had a, a really fast clip with how he went about conquering other empires. He, he conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire in just a few uh, short years. Um, so exceedingly quick. And then from that point forward, Greece stands alone. It is the dominant, prominent empire in the ancient Near, Near East. A few years later, Alexander the Great dies... And there's this big power struggle in the, the Greek world. Uh, it's called the, the Wars of the Diodici, or the Wars of Alexander's Successors. Um, there, was, there was no like, uh, like verified male heir to Alexander's throne when he died. There was uh, one, one son, I think, that they weren't quite sure if it was his or not. There was uh, an unborn child. Uh, that they weren't sure if it was going to be a boy or girl. So, they, so there, there was kind of just, just um, you know, ambiguity over who was going to take over. And four of his top generals were all vying for that spot. You had uh, Cassander kind of out, out of the, the, the headquarters in Greece. You had uh, Lysimachus out of uh, Asia Minor, surrounding area. You have Seleucus uh, over in Persia. And then you have Ptolemy down in Egypt. So those are kind of the four guys that were all vying for power, and they ended up just, just kind of splitting it up. You take, your, you take your portion, I'll take my portion, and they kind of had four different dynasties based out of those four regions of uh, what was formerly one unified Greek uh, kingdom. So that all tracks. Verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, uh, in which place four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So exactly what we see happening after the death of Alexander the Great. His kingdom is divided into four uh, people. Daniel kind of called it exactly. 
you know, 200 years beforehand. Verse 23, and, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. So, uh, Alexander the Great, whose kingdom is divided among his four generals, the, the four uh, successors. Now, if we zoom in on one of those four dynasties, the Seleucid dynasty, um, and we fast forward uh, eight rulers in uh, to the year 175 BC, we get to a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, which is who, I mean, everyone, all, all those scholars agree that that is who this little horn, so the, the prominent horn is Alexander the Great, the four horns are the four generals that succeeded him and div- divvied his empire up into four, and then the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, the eighth ruler in the Seleucid dynasty. Verse 24 says, His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. By, by all accounts, Antiochus Epiphanes was a bad, violent, ruthless, merciless, just a, a, a bad king. And the Jewish people in the ancient world bore much of the brunt of, of that. The name, the name Antiochus Epiphanes literally means uh, so a, a stubborn person who thinks that he's God. Uh, the name Antiochus means that anti, anti is against, uh, against the support or against what people are trying to encourage me to do. So Antiochus is stubborn or uh, you know, obstinate. And uh, Epiphanes... Like if you have an epiphany, right, if you're like trying to remember something, oh, I had an epiphany. It means you like, rem- you, it's almost like you had this divine vision, this divine revelation, and that's how I remembered that thing. I had an epiphany. So he, he understood himself to be the divine revelation of God here on earth. So a stubborn man who thinks that he's God walking among men. That's what his name meant. Uh, yeah, ba- bad guy, uh, you know, wicked man. Um, up until... Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jewish people in the Old Testament and then in the intertestamental period, uh, they enjoyed a modicum of, like they kind of had, they were grandfathered in uh, to uh, enjoying some religious liberty that a lot of other civilizations did not enjoy when they were taken over by these succeeding uh, kingdoms, right? the, The common practice at the time was that a, a nation would, would take over and then they would impose their religion and their worship practices on the civilization that they just took, took over, right? Uh, everyone kind of understood their gods to be their gods of their people, but not really like, like our God's authority doesn't really go outside of the borders of our civilization, of our tribe, our country, our city-state. So when another city-state takes over yours, it's like their God took over your God, and now you worship. And, and most countries were happy to like abandon their old religion and take on the religion of the country that just uh, defeated them because they're like, yeah, like our God lost. Like, like why would we still worship our God who lost and therefore forfeited the right for us to worship? He proved that he's not worthy of our worship. But this, this tribe that just conquered us, their God is obviously stronger than our old God, so we're going to switch teams and go worship their God instead of ours. Most civilizations were happy to do that. So most kings would come in and conquer and say, you're going to worship my God now, and you're going to worship me who is a representative of that, that God now, or kind of a co-regent with that God now. And most, most of them were like, sure, we're happy to do that. Israel was like the sore thumb that was like, yeah, we're not going to do that. You're going to have to kill, like, you just have to kill us before we worship your God. And, you know, because Israel was unique in believing not just that they worship a God that's of their own little tribe, but they worship the God of the heavens and the earth, the only God that exists in the universe. Israel was the the unique nation that thought, your gods are all fake, our God is the only God, and so we can never, ever worship any God other than ours. So you can take over our country, and they were taken over quite a bit, but we're not going to worship your God. You'll have to kill us. We'd rather die than go to hell. It's kind of how Israel uh, interacted with the kings and kingdoms that took over them. And most of the kings basically just said, all right, I mean, I could 
kill every Israelite person, it's a lot of paperwork. So I don't, you know, I, I'll just, uh, that's a lot of slaves that I won't have to do my bidding. That's, you know, so I'm just going to let them, they're so insistent on not worshiping me and my God, I'm just going to bend that rule for them so just to make my life easier. And so they kind of had something of a religious exemption for a lot of these until Antiochus Epiphanes. This guy was like, nope, rules are rules. We're doing it my way. This is just how it works. And so he uh, outlawed the worship of the God of Israel. Uh, he, he outlawed the practice of circumcision. If, if you were practicing your Jewish religion, you are thrown in jail. You are killed. He went into the temple uh, to worship God, and he put an altar to Zeus in the temple that Israel had built to worship God. He said, if you're going to worship in this temple, it's going to be to Zeus and not to God. And then to add insult to injury, he uh, took a pig and brought it into the temple and slaughtered it on the altar. Pigs were considered unclean. They weren't allowed to touch them, and so he's effectively defiling the temple. He took the blood and guts of the pig and sprinkled it all over the temple on all of the temple utensils so that no one could worship God without being defiled. Every copy of the Old Testament that he could get his hands on, he sprinkled blood, pig blood and guts on it so that you couldn't read your Bible without being defiled against the God of heaven. He took uh, Jewish high, the Jewish high priest and forced him, I mean, at, not gunpoint, but at like, sword point, or threat, under threat of death, uh, to, to eat pig meat, uh, knowing that this high priest would understand that to be this disgusting, defiling, it's the worst person that you could do to a devout Jewish person in the ancient world was make him eat uh, pork, pig meat, and that's what Antiochus did. He was so ruthless, so violent, so insulting, so offensive, so dehumanizing to the Jewish people that it caused an uprising. It caused a, re- a revolution, a revolt. And uh, the, the Jewish people revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes in what was called the Maccabean Revolt. There was a guy named Judas Maccabeus who led this insurrection. They would kind of raid towns and attack and kill Greek military officials and try to destabilize Greek control of the, uh, of the Jewish people. You can read about the Maccabean Revolt, incidentally, in uh, a, a book that's in the Apocrypha, called, or two books, called First and Second Maccabees. So they're not uh, inspired, they're not part of the 66 books of inspired scripture, So take them with a grain of salt. But they do describe the events of the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes uh, culminated in something of a victory for the Israelite people. Um, They took took back control of the temple. Uh, They rededicated it to the Lord. They cleansed it of all of the defilement that had been put into it. They threw out all of the stuff that had been defiled. They brought in new stuff. This is is going to be reinstituted for the worship of the God of heaven. It's not for Zeus or anyone like that anymore. They took the oil, all of the oil that had pig blood and guts in it. They threw it all out. And they're like, let's get new oil for the lamps so that we can worship God in the temple. And they can only find one lamp of oil. So they brought that in. And one lamp of oil is supposed to keep, or one jar of oil is supposed to keep a lamp lit for one day. And they lit it, and miraculously, that lamp stayed lit not for one day, but for eight days. Which is where we get the holiday that's still celebrated today, Hanukkah. The festival of lights, where there's eight nights, eight days and, and nights of kind of celebrating the, the miracle of the oil in the temple being kept for, for eight days instead of uh, one. And so all of, everything that you celebrate at Hanukkah all looks back to the Maccabean Revolt, which was against Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the little horn uh, here in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel says there's going to be a king of bold face, defiant against God, causing fearful destruction, destroying the people of God. Interestingly enough, uh, the persecution of the Jewish people at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes, during which thousands of Jewish people were murdered, ran from 170 B.C. to 164 B.C. 
So a little over six years, about 2,300 nights, which is exactly what Daniel says in chapter 8, verse 14. He says, by his, back to verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. So he's going to elevate himself. He's going to call evil good. He's going to call good evil, all of which is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Right? Worship me. Right? Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, his reputation outside of Israel was, was actually, he was pretty generous, pretty magnanimous. He would give gifts to his citizens. He would, like, go visit common people in their common places. And so, so by all accounts, uh, you know, he, you know, if you worship Zeus, if you do what I tell you, I'll give you a right, like, if you do evil, I will reward you. But if you do good, if you worship God, I will kill you. That was Antiochus's reputation. Without warning, he shall destroy many, in verse 25, exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, exactly what he did, standing defiantly in the temple of God, right? Defiling the temple of God. The God of the Jews means nothing to me. I'm not afraid of him. I I laugh at him. I'm going to force his people under threat of death to worship me instead of him. So all that is what happens with Antiochus Epiphanes. But, in the end, he shall be broken, but not broken by a human hand. So that means that eventually Antiochus is going to be put down, and it's going to be God that does it. If you remember to Daniel chapter 2, the statue, and then it says it's crushed by a stone cut from a mountain, but not cut by a human hand. It means it's God. Right, God cut that. Right, the, the stone is God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, crushing human kingdoms and human rebellion and establishing his kingdom forever. And Daniel uses that same language here to say, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is going to be put down by God himself. There's some... Uh, we don't know exactly how Antiochus Epiphanes died. There's different accounts. Um, one says he committed suicide and drowned himself. Uh, one says that he um, was uh, captured and killed. Second Maccabees says that uh, God struck him with disease. He had intense abdominal pain, uh, and he fell out of his chariot and smacked the ground and, and, and died on impact uh, because the pain was so... Second Maccabees says, uh, Thus he, who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and that he had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance. That man was brought down to earth, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms, and while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away because of the stench of the whole army. Uh, because of the stench, the whole entire army felt revulsion at his decay. So that's what 2 Maccabees says happened to Antiochus Epiphanes. Could be. I don't know. What we do know is that whatever happened to Antiochus Epiphanes, God did it from verse 25. It it didn't happen by a human hand. It happened by the hand of, of God. God struck Antiochus Epiphanes with judgment and wrath because of his sin and his pride. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So, so uh, you know, Daniel, you're having a dream here in Babylon during the reign of Belshazzar, and this is a long time from now. We've got to get through Belshazzar. We've got to get through the reign, the reign of, of Medo-Persia. We've got to get to Alexander the Great, the dynasties that succeed him. All of that has to happen before we get to Antiochus Epiphanes. So just, you know, put a pin in that for, the, for a minute. Verse 27, and I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days, and then I rose and went about the king's business, and I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. So he's like, I'm, you know, thinking about, I'm thinking about the the persecution and suffering and pain that's going to be endured by the people of God, hundreds, by my great, 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 great grandkids, and I'm like upset by it. I'm like visibly 
unnerved by. Like, I'm here in Babylon experiencing persecution, and I thought this was bad, but what I'm hearing about what's going to come uh, at the hand of this, this little horn this, uh, is, is way worse, and I am uh, really, uh, uh, it's upsetting. It's upsetting to me. Now, that's Daniel 8. Now, like I said, most secular historians, most people who don't have a high view of Scripture, uh, date, they, they, they read the, the history, and they look at Daniel, and they're like, this is so specific, and so, um, like, it can't, it could not have been written beforehand, because it's just not, no one is that accurate hundreds of years beforehand. So they date Daniel to uh, the middle of the second century rather than uh, to, you know, middle of the sixth century. And the thinking is, there's no one named Daniel that ever existed. That's just a, that's like Mickey Mouse. So there's no one named Daniel. It's a fictitious character. There was a, there was some wise guy that was alive during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he thought, I'm going to write, I'm going to, I'm going to trick some people and write cryptically about these events that I just witnessed here in the the Greek kingdom under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, but I'm going to claim that it was written by someone under the reign of Babylon 400 years ago. I'm going to give him the name Daniel. I'm going to claim that that it's talking about persecution that Daniel was experiencing then, and then allude kind of cryptically to the persecution that we are experiencing now here in Greece. And I'm going to claim that, you know, this guy Daniel could know the future through divine revelation. And maybe people will read it today and be like, wow, this is amazing. How could they know that back then? And, they're, you know, they'll believe it. And, and then maybe they'll be inspired or maybe they'll, um, you know, have, they'll strengthen their resolve and their heart to push through persecution instead of giving up. They'll think, oh, we're, you know, we're in the same thing that Daniel was in, in back then. So he kind of, this big kind of uh, ploy, essentially, to, uh, yeah, you know, get his work circulated and kind of either encourage people or inspire people or, I don't know. I don't believe that the book of Daniel was written then. Um, I mean, largely because I believe in the authority of Scripture. So, you know, verse 27 among others, I, Daniel. So, like, it says it was written by Daniel. I believe that the Bible is inerrant and that it's authoritative. And so when the Bible says it was written by Daniel in Babylon, I believe that it was written by Daniel in Babylon. So, like, that's just end of discussion, right? Like, full stop. It just says it, it is it. But I'll, despite that being the main reason why I believe that Daniel was written in the 6th century, I'll, uh, it's not the only reason. I'll give you two other reasons that are, that are interesting. So, why was Daniel written in the sixth? How do we know that Daniel was written in the sixth century instead of the second? Other than the fact that it says it, which again should be enough. But one, uh, passages from the book of Daniel have been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't want to bore you with, with this stuff either, but the long and short of it is the Dead Sea Scrolls are a handful of scrolls that were found in the desert in the caves of Qumran uh, in the middle of the 20th, 1950, middle 20th century. And uh, we know that uh, much of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've dated them to 1st, 2nd, 3rd century uh, B.C. Um, so, uh, presumably, uh, at, at the latest, we know that the, um, the copies of the book of Daniel that are in the Dead Sea Scrolls were written in the middle of the 2nd century B.C., which is like either before or right on the heels of the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. So, if you're going to say Daniel was written in... There's no way Daniel could have been written in the 6th century because it talks too detailed about Antiochus Epiphanes. It has to be written in the 2nd century. Then what you also have to say is um, it somehow was written and then absorbed into the Jewish culture and recognized as authoritative in Scripture in just a few short years between when it was written and during the life of Antiochus Epiphanes and when the people would have been in, the, you know, in and around the caves of Qumran. But that's not how Scripture was recognized in the Old Testament. It took way longer than a few short years. It took generations. It took over a hundred years for Scriptures to be circulated 
and, and kind of assessed by all of the different pockets, and then it had to be universally, unanimously accepted. All of the pockets uh, of Judaism and all over had to all say, yes, we think this is Scripture, and then it would be adopted as Scripture and kind of put into part of the, the canon. And so it's um, incredibly unlikely, if not impossible, for the book of Daniel to be included in the Dead Sea Scrolls if it were written during the lifetime of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's one reason. Here's another, which is interesting, um, and it comes from uh, a, first, a first century A.D. historian named Josephus, who's probably like universally recognized as one of the most accurate historians in the ancient world. The writings of Josephus give us the only, the only, te- only ancient texts that give us more insight into what happened in the ancient world than Josephus is just the Bible. Um, the, the Bible itself gives us insight. And so Josephus is kind of universally recognized. Um, and he wrote about Alexander the Great. So Josephus, a historian, did a bunch of research about Alexander the Great, the king of Greece, and wrote it in his works. And here's what he wrote about Al- Alexander the Great. And here's what he said that Alexander the Great said. Specifically, when Alexander the Great was coming to Jerusalem... In 332 BC. So, so Jerusalem is still under the reign of the Medo-Persian Empire, but Alexander the Great is kind of marching eastward, and he's starting to take over Medo-Persia, and he gets to Israel. And Josephus says that Alexander the Great says, I was considering with myself how I might obtain dominion of Asia, over where Persia is, And the high priest of Israel exhorted me. He said, make no delay, but boldly pass over the sea because God is going to give you dominion over the Persians. And the high priest told me that I would conquer them. So how would the high priest know that? And why would the high priest tell Alexander the Great to go attack Persia with the full confidence that you are going to win that battle? And then the high priest takes Alexander the Great into the temple in Jerusalem, and he offers, he, he offers a sacrifice to God with uh, Alexander the Great under the direction of the high priest, and Alexander the Great treated the high priest and all of the priests with uh, magnificence and with, with kindness. And so he says, go uh, conquer Persia because you're going to conquer them, and then come with me into the temple and let's offer a sacrifice to God, and they do. And then... It says that the high priest got the book of Daniel out and read it to Alexander the Great. So we're in the 4th century, right? 150 years prior to the life of, of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Josephus says the high priest read Daniel chapter 8 to Alexander the Great. And when the book of Daniel was read to Alexander, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, Alexander the Great supposed that he himself was the person that that prophecy was referring to. High priest reads Daniel 8 to Alexander, and he says, Alexander, you are the horn, the prominent horn on the goat that is Greece. And you are ordained by God to destroy the two-horned ram that is Medo-Persia. God told us that you were going to come. God told us that this is going to happen. And then Alexander did exactly what we read in Daniel 8, verses 5 through 8. People who don't believe in the authority of Scripture rightly realize that the prophecies in Daniel 8 are so specific and so accurate describing events that happened in the 3rd, 4th, 4th, 3rd, and 2nd centuries that they are forced to say that it had to be written after it occurred, which is impossible because Alexander the Great read it before he did it. Those are some reasons why I think Daniel was written in the 500s rather than in the 100s. One, because the Bible is true and it says that it was. Two, because uh, it's included in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Three, because according to Josephus, an accurate historian, uh, it was read to Alexander before he ever even conquered Persia. Now, why does all that matter? Who cares? 
Who cares when Daniel was written? Aside from the obvious implications that it has for the authority of Scripture, which matters, why does this matter? Why should we care? I would submit to you that we probably shouldn't care about the dating of the book of Daniel if our only reason is because we think it's cool, we think it's interesting, you know, we think it, it, it indulges some sort of intellectual curiosity. So I'm a history buff, so I like to read it. And if, that, if that's why we, you know, read and think about this kind of prophecy, then I don't know that it matters all that much. I would submit to you that if we read Daniel and think about it for the sake of winning an argument or picking a fight with someone who doesn't believe the Bible and, you know, trying to prove to them that they have to admit that we are right and that they are are wrong, it's probably not why we should care all that much about when Daniel was written. I would submit to you that we should care about when Daniel was written because of what it tells us about the sovereignty of God, the transcendence of God, the power of God, the authority of God, and we should care about the sovereignty and power and transcendence and authority of God because of what that tells us about the promises that God has made to us in Christ the promises that God has made to us in the, the gospel. Prophecy in Daniel matters because of what it says about God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty matters because of what it says about God's promises in the gospel. Namely, that they're true. Namely, that God can bring them about. Namely, that God is not weak or impotent or incapable of, of fulfilling the promises that he has made to us. If I... I have a, I have a guilty pleasure. I, uh, I like to... I'm, I'm fascinated by large sums of money. I, I like to, you know, read about how Bill Gates spends his money, where, you know... I, I love sports contracts and guaranteed money and salary cap and all that stuff. I find that stuff, find that stuff fascinating. So if someone wants to come up to me and have a conversation about how much money Bill Gates has or how much money LeBron James made over the course of his career or whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll talk with them, I'll, and I'll, 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 find it, I'll find that conversation interesting. I like to look people up on Celebrity Net Worth and see how much money, you know, like, like, all right, here's how much I like their music, so here's how much money I think they should have made if society is as smart as I am with their musical taste. And usually I'm right. Um, but, so, so if someone wants to have a conversation about how much money has Billy Joel made or whatever, like, sure, I'll happy to have that conversation. But it doesn't really matter to me that much. It's entirely theoretical. It's entirely abstract. I don't know him. Bill Gates could have $1 or a trillion dollars. It doesn't really affect me that much at all. But if Bill Gates came up to me and said, I've got a bajillion dollars, could never spend it even if I tried. I need to unload some of it for tax purposes. So I'm going to write you a check, Ben Lopresti, for a billion dollars right now. That's a different conversation. That's one that I am like personally invested in. It's not just intellectual curiosity about how much money does he have and does he put it in a, you know, a mutual fund or not, right? That's like, a, oh my gosh, this really affects me a lot. If I were to tell you that God is sovereign over all things, and if I were to show you from Daniel chapter 8 that God is sovereign over all things and that he orchestrates human history according to his sovereign will, and if I were to show you that and then just stop, that would be, an interesting, it'd be a, an interesting conversation, kind of like talking about how much money Bill Gates has. And you'd say, thanks for that interesting conversation. I appreciate it. Now let me go get back to my life of trying to be good enough to merit the favor of God so that I can go to heaven instead of hell when I die. But it wouldn't mean anything to you. Now, 
If I were to tell you that God was sovereign over all things and show you from Daniel chapter 8 how God is sovereign over all things, and then we were to turn to Romans 8 and just read a handful of promises that we see in that chapter, and then you'd know that the God who is sovereign over everything and can do whatever he wants, these are the specific promises that he has made to me. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those people who trust in Christ. Verse 14, you are no longer a slave, but you're a child of God. You've been adopted into his family. You are a co-heir with Christ. Verse 28, God works all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Verse 32, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. And now, since he has done that, how will he also, not with him, also give us all things? Verse 38, neither height, nor depth, nor death, or life, or angels, or demons, nothing in the past, or present, or future, nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Like, if you were to tether the sovereignty of God that we understand from Daniel 8 with the promises of God that we read throughout the rest of Scripture. That is, and that's just, that's just one chapter. I mean, that, you know, Ephesians 1, I have chosen you and predestined you and redeemed you and shed my blood for you and I will keep you forever until the day of redemption. John, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, God will forgive us and cleanse us because he is faithful Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. Matthew 28, I am with you always until the end of the age. Revelation 21, he will be our God and we will be his people and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God is making everything new forever. All of those promises, they're, they're binded indelibly forever because God is sovereign. If God weren't sovereign, then none of those promises would mean, it would be like me writing you a check for a billion dollars. That's worthless. You'd rip it up and laugh at me, right? Because I'm, right, but if, so if God is making these promises and he's writing checks he can't cash, then they're not of much value to us. But if God is sovereign, if God can declare the end from the beginning, hundreds of years beforehand, if God is orchestrating human history, moving it toward its telos, its end, where he is going to establish his kingdom and save his people. Those are promises that he's made, and he's sovereign and able to accomplish them. That matters. God's promises will never fail because God is sovereign. The reason why the sovereignty of God matters is because God has promised to leverage the full weight of his sovereignty on your behalf. All of the sovereignty that we read about in Daniel 8 and elsewhere, God has said, I'm going to take that and I'm going to use it. I'm going to deploy it specifically to save you from your sin, to bring you into my presence, to keep you with me forever and ever. If I, weren't, if I weren't sovereign, I couldn't do it, right? We don't preach the sovereignty of God as an intellectual curiosity. Here's something cool about the Bible, so you can win a trivia contest or an argument. We preach the sovereignty of God because it means that we can now take hold of the promises of God and know with assurance and with certainty that God will keep them. He will not fail. He will not falter ever. Daniel 8 matters, right? Prophecy about future human kingdoms matters because it assures us that God is sovereign over all things, which means that God can and will keep his promises to us, that he has saved us from our sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that he will keep us forever. And that is what we remember and celebrate together at the Lord's Supper. We remember that God is sovereign, that Jesus has died for us, that God's wrath has been satisfied, that our salvation is secure, and that God's promises are true. When we eat and drink together, we are declaring to one another, 
God's promises are true. God is sovereign over all things. He has saved me and he is keeping me. And he will always keep me forever. And I believe that. We believe that. That's what the Lord's Supper is. Believing and enjoying the promises of God together. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you're a Christian, if you're a member of the people of God, then this, the Lord's Supper is our opportunity to remember the gospel together and to celebrate the gospel together as a family. I'm going to pray. The music starts. Uh, Eric and I will distribute the elements. You can come up and grab them and return to your, your seat. Just take a moment. Pray. Repent of your sin. Receive the grace that Jesus is offering freely to you. Rejoice, eat, drink. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead, we would invite you not to take communion, but to take Christ and to to trust in him to save you from your sin, from the wrath of God, so that you can be reconciled to him and enjoy his presence forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are in fact sovereign over human history, that nothing has ever happened or ever will happen apart from your sovereign will allowing it and causing it to happen. We thank you that you have in your sovereignty purposed to save us from our sin. That Jesus has died for us, his body was broken, his blood was shed so that we can receive forgiveness and salvation for all of eternity. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, or we thank you for your sovereignty, and we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.